Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and I'm here tonight with my guest co-host Tom and we are going to talk about 13th Age as well as some other stuff. So Tom, say hello to everyone. How's it going? It's good to be here, Michael. Uh, Is this your first faculty meeting? I think I've done one before. Yeah, I know you've been on detention a couple of times, but I wasn't sure if you've done done one faculty. All right. All right. So you're not brand new. I'm pretty brand new. But you're, you're still pretty brand new. Uh, so this is going to be faculty meeting number 132, and if anyone's maybe listening for the first time or catching us later, uh, the faculty meetings are where myself and the co-host, we're going to talk about role-playing games, and we hope that somewhere in there, we're going to share some of the experience that we've gleaned from doing this for a very long time, and we hope that some of that advice will be useful to you at your table. But we understand that some of the advice we share and the opinions we give may not work at every table every time, but there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Tom, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you're playing, which system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, as long as your group is having fun, then you're doing it right. It's a pretty good rule. It is, it is a pretty good rule. Um, I also want to announce that we have a sponsor for tonight's show. Uh, There's a Kickstarter currently running called Mimics Grid. Uh, They've already funded. They're working on stretch goals. Anyone who's watched the show for a while knows that I'm not a map and mini person. I pretty much do theater of the mind all the time now. Um, But if I was going to do maps and minis, this seems like a really cool way to do it. Um, These grids are 10 by 10 inch, uh, made out of some sort of material that's like got magnets in the size. They connect together so you can build out larger uh, floor plans. Uh, they also have, uh, they're coated with this, I don't scientific coating, basically so you can write them with wet erase, dry erase, permanent marker, nothing will stick to it. So you can write with whatever's there. Um, if at certain levels you get access to these uh, art assets that are like layout maps of like, you know, terrain. So instead of just being the white blocks, you'll have grassy plains or waters or mountains. Um, and then you can get little like trees and rocks that you can throw down. It'll snap to them. And within a couple seconds, you can have a pretty vivid a terrain for your maps and minis if you're going to use those. Uh, so check it out. Mimics Grids on Kickstarter. When this episode goes live on YouTube and the, the audio only, I'll put a link into it. Uh, very important though, if anyone does go, checks out Mimic Grid from hearing about us, make sure you let them know because that helps us get more sponsors when they know that it works. So with that out of the way, so Tom, there's a couple community outreach programs that you kind of have led the charge. So I want to start with those. So Perfect. what is a Catacon line? Catacon line, it is the RPG Academy's second annual online RPG convention that is meant to build up hype and awareness for IRL Catacon in November. Mm-hmm. Yes, nice. true. So yeah, last year was the very first Catacon line. This was before I was a faculty member and it was I participated and I had a whole lot of fun. And so now this year I Michael's like I'm like Michael, you got too much stuff going on, man. All right? Let me do this. And so and so I'm kind of heading up a catacon line. You can go to you can just Google a catacon line. Um, we've been sharing links everywhere. We've going to be having games and panels and it's going to be a very good time. So far we have two officially announced panels. One is going to be being led by the Rollist podcast and Calum over there as he talks to gamers over in the UK and tries to teach us a little bit about their community that they have over there. And then the other one is going to be, Michael's going to be running his world famous (laughs) intro 
to DMing panel or GMing 101. And you're, who are you going to be doing that with? Uh, so it's going to be Victoria from the Broadswords. Um, Shane from Total Party Thrill is usually my guest co-host on that one. Uh, but he is going to be on a vacation. Slacker. So Taylor, who has done it with me before from Riverhouse Games, is going to be stepping in and being the third on that time. So it is absolutely aimed at people who have just started DMing, maybe haven't even DMed yet, but they want to. Very basic intro level advice to get you started started strong and I feel even if you've been running games for a while you might pick up on a couple things that we suggest you do that might be useful at your table and even if you disagree with us thinking about why you disagree with us might be something worthwhile yep it's going to be a good time the dates for this is July 12th 13th and 14th it's completely free um badges and then tickets and then all we ask is that if you had a good time think about donating to a catacon because the more funds we have the more the the better we can make irl a catacon for everybody who's who's there and it, it's a it's a lot of fun so yeah and, and even if you have fun but you don't want to donate that's, that's cool as well yeah, we really you, just want to play with people that's the other that is the other thing just because a catacon is not till november so Let's do something in July, about halfway from the Kickstarter, so some somewhere around there, and just get to play with everybody that we see at a Catacon, and maybe some people who don't get a chance to come to a Catacon but want to play with us. Yep. There's already a bunch of games on there. We, we actually have a lot more games than we currently have players, so yeah. we've got seats to fill, um, and there's some really cool games on there, so I really hope more people will check it out. And again, it's free unless you choose to donate. Uh, but when you go to the, the website, it says buy a badge. You have to click the button that says buy a badge, but there's no cost associated. It's true. And the same thing with tickets. You have to buy the tickets, but there's no cost. It's just That's, right. that's the terminology the website uses. There's nothing we can do about that. Yep. All right. And then there's another thing that you've been doing, and, you, and technically you started it before you joined the faculty. Oh, uh, yes. But you, but you were kind of still working with us um, mm-hmm. tangentially. And this is once a month we do a one-shot series at a local game store so if just talk a little bit about what that is and then especially if someone out there might be thinking about doing the same thing any advice Mm -hmm. for them yeah so it's been a while i've been doing this for a while where once a month i wanted to run a basically a night at a it started at a a board game bar but we've transitioned over to a board a game store woodburn games in cincinnati and it's basically it's an most of the time when you go into a game store a lot of the game nights, there's going to be campaigns running. And sometimes it can be intimidating to just jump into the middle of a campaign. And then there's also this idea of commitment. And let's, let's come on, let's face the reality. A lot of us don't like commitment. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to offer a one-shot gaming night. And so the way this works is that you just show up at 7 o'clock once a month. And then you just hop into a game. And so we usually have four to five games running. And then we'll usually have some extra GMs because there's nothing worse than showing up to a game store for a open gaming night and then there not being enough seats. So we wanted to make sure that we always have enough seats. And then we also wanted to make sure that just that we could start to interact with some of our um, the community and some of the people who listen to the show within Cincinnati. So it was, it's kind of been a labor of love of mine, and I wanted to really make it easy for the GMs as well. So it's really just run whatever you want. I'll take care of the rest. And so that's what we've been doing. And it's, you know, it's, it's had its ups and downs in mm-hmm. attendance, uh, but it's still a lot of fun. Um, you go pretty much every month. I go when I can. We yep. have some other people from the faculty as well. Uh, usually there, there's a lot of D&D 5e because people seem to want that. Like that's usually what people are looking for. But we also have run Dungeon World, Numenera, 
um, everything we've Marvel had Marvel superheroes. Yeah, we've had just a bunch of different stuff. Uh, so it's a lot. I ran Dread. Scooby Doo Dread. I got, got that's still that's a big hit. That's a that's a big yeah. hit there. People talk about that. Yeah, everywhere I go, that's kind of it's uh, kind of my thing. People okay. really love that. that <laughs> Take thing. it. Which again, if you want to go to a Catacon line, I'm running that that game Scooby Doo Dread on the Catacon line. Yes, it's virtual. There's a couple weird rules. You have to have your own Jenga tower. But if you have, have any interest whatsoever playing Scooby Doo Dread, and you should because it is a fun game, Dread and my version. Um, there's still three seats left for it so go now get a ticket and join me yeah so if anybody so if anybody's in town i think this next is going to be july second second july 2nd at 7 p.m at woodburn games it's a really really great inclusive gaming store in cincinnati very nice store so if anyone out there may be thinking about doing the same thing like how did you approach the game store what are you like any kind of concessions like how do you actually process okay yeah it's uh, really what it started out with was when i was running at the rook which was a game bar here in cincinnati um they reached out to me um just I, i honestly can't remember how it originally happened and then it kind of just went from there and i'd started to develop almost like my rolodex of gms and so my process is i have all these people who want to run games for me so instead of them asking me or me going to individual gms i basically just shoot out an email and i'm like whoever wants to run a game this month send me your information the first five or six people who respond you're on the list everybody else just come play so then when I wanted to run it at Woodburn Games, which was this new game store that opened up its relative, and I was like, hey, this place is really cool, and I want to be at a game store. So honestly, I just went to them and said, hey, are you looking for people to run games? And no game store worth its salt is ever going to turn down anybody who says, hey, let me bring in five people to run games for you. They're like, yeah, sure, why not? So I honestly, I just I just went to them, and they have been more than accommodating. And then what we try to do is we try to basically all the GMs send me all their game informations, and we post them on the game store's Discord and their Facebook, and just let people know, hey, these are the games that we're running. If you're interested, come play. If you're not interested in any of these games, don't feel like you have to come. Wait till the next one. So we like to keep a, a wide variety of games. Um, but honestly, I tell the GMs that run games for me, I'm like, hey, just run whatever you want. No pressure. This is your chance to run that really weird system or game that you kickstarted years ago but have never got a chance to play. This is your time. Run a one shot. Yep. It's basically like our little mini convention once a month. Yep. So uh, Again, it's a lot of fun. So if anyone is in the Cincy area, um, come on down mm-hmm. next uh, next Tuesday, I guess. Yep, uh, yep. And it's play the second Tuesday. It's the first Tuesday every month. Um, if you aren't aware, Tom, next month, August, is Gen Con week. So yep. I'm going to guess that we should probably skip that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that we will. Most of the people yeah. who are at the store are going to be there at Gen Con. Yep. So maybe that one will be the second Tuesday. Yep. We'll, we'll look into that. All right. So with that out of the way, one of the things I wanted to talk about is 13th Age. Uh, I've ran a campaign before in 13th Age. It's one of our most popular that we've ever done on the show. It's called Secrets, Lies, and the Undead. There's 13 episodes in season one. We never got to a season two. Uh, But I really like 13th Age a lot. There's a lot about it, the things that it does that I think are interesting. And we're talking about starting a new campaign soon. And one of the systems that I'm considering is doing another one in 13th Age. So I got back, I started reading the books again and, and just getting kind of excited and like, like remembering like, oh yeah, that's one thing I like. Oh yeah, that's one thing I like. 
So I just kind of wanted to talk about it because there's I have all this sort of like energy of like, I really am digging into the system right now and there's parts of it I just love. You have never played it. This is true. Never played. So you don't know it. So we thought this might, might be a fun way to make this work is mm-hmm. that you're going to ask me some questions about why I like it. I'm going to try to explain to you why I like it and see if I can convince you that it is worth your time and effort to play. Um, and hopefully somewhere in the middle, if anyone's listening, this is going to be pretty high level. We're not going to get to any really meat and potato stuff. So, you know, if, you, if you're interested in playing 13th Age, this might be a good episode to listen to. If you know a lot about 13th Age, I'm probably just going to make you mad by getting things wrong. But still, that could be fun as well. So, Tom, yeah, ask away. So, I'll preface by, like, I hear so many people talk about 13th Age, and it's never been anything that I've wanted to play because, to me, I always see it as, hey, this is just another fantasy game. All right? So, and so, but the amount that I hear people talk about it, I know that there's something going on that makes it different than Dungeons and Dragons because it, a lot of times it gets lumped into that same boat. So I definitely want to talk about what makes it a little bit different and what are some of the very, very distinct features about the game that makes it special for you. So first off, I'm going to ask you, all right, I warned you that I was going to ask you this. What is the elevator pitch for 13th Age? Give it to me briefly so 13th age is a D clone it's definitely the, a child of the ogl but they have codified indie game mechanics story game narrative game mechanics that make it a little bit more free from free form allowing for the players to have a little bit more narrative control these are all things that i do in my D games anyways but it's things that i've taken from other games in 13th age they are part of the system they're baked in okay so basically giving narrative control to players so in 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 various ways yes okay um perfect who 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 produces 13th age uh so it was printed by pelgrim press i believe it came out in 2013 and the two lead designers are uh uh, it's Jonathan Tweed and Rob Heinsu. Heinsu, I think okay. is how you say his name. I, okay, that's um, yeah, that's right. That sounds yeah, Pelgrane Press. Okay, uh, yep. so uh, one of the things that um, let's talk about this ability bonuses um, for both race and class. Because when you first told me about this, I kind of like wait ability bonus from both race and class. To me, that means that I'm only ever going to play a high elf wizard because. If I'm going to be getting my intelligence from my race and then my intelligence from my class, then what what keeps you from min-maxing to the extreme well, with this game? The, the rules of the game. Uh, so the, 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 the purpose behind this, as well as I understand it, is not to min-max, but to actually encourage people to play what might be called suboptimal characters. Um, I know like my first ever D&D 5e game or uh, character was a half-orc bard. The game is not designed very well if you want to play a half-orc bard well. Uh, it was a lot of fun to play, but I wasn't really good at what I was supposed to be good about. And I'm not saying the system is perfect because any class-based system, it, it, it is what it is. But you get some bonuses from your race, and then you get some bonuses from your class, so you can spread those out and play a half-orc wizard or half-orc bard in the system, and your stats aren't going to be atrocious. But you can't double up. So if you get a bonus to intelligence from your race, you cannot use a class-based bonus for intelligence. So in each case, I think you have two options. 
and you just can't double them up. So it might be like strength and con for race and wisdom con for class. You can't pick con from both of them. Okay, so it's got a natural break in there then to keep you from just making the most optimum character. You still make good characters, but you just can't, like I said, you can't expect to be high elf wizard and get tons of intelligence that way right i mean it like it's like a DD clone um you can roll your stats they have a point by method as well i probably would use standard array which i don't think is in that book but i would just take the numbers from DD uh because that's just the way i like to do it now but yeah you still i think you cap out at 18 i don't think you can get higher than that anyways um maybe you can I, I, honestly i don't remember if you roll an 18 or if you point by an 18 i don't know if you can then get to 20 or not but either 18 or 20 is still the max you can get no matter what Okay, so let's talk about that. What are some cool... You, you talk about a half-orc bard. Yes. What are some other cool combinations that you've seen? Because I like, like you, I love the suboptimal character just because I, it's, it's, they're interesting, all right? Yeah, I, I really enjoy those. Um, not everyone does. That's cool. It's not yep. your thing. Uh, but, you know, your classics, you can play a gnome barbarian. Uh, you can play a halfling fighter. Uh, you can play, uh, in this game... You have dark elves, but they're not necessarily D and D version where they're like always evil or whatever. Yes, um, edge so lords. Yeah, yeah. So you can play a dark elf who is a paladin of goodness and light, uh, but that's really not a stat character. But yeah, I mean, all your classics. The uh, the, the game comes with the the basic races you would expect from a D and D clone and the basic classes that you would expect. There was a supplement came out, 13 True Ways, that introduced a few additional character classes. I think Monk's in there. There's an Occultist. There's a Necromancer, a Chaos Mage. Uh, I think a Commander, which is kind of like a Warlord from 4E. And they also introduced Multiclassing, but I really haven't dug into that book very much, so I don't know a whole lot about it. Okay, the most important thing, though, is are there Warlocks? I don't know. I think so. You won't know what? All right, I'm not playing it then. <laughs> Let me let me double check here. Because to me, warlocks, they are just... I know people are not huge... People either love them or hate them in D&D 5th edition. They either say they're just so much fun to play or people are like, oh, this is the most contrived class I've ever played in my life. So, so it does not look like there's a warlock, at least in the base book. I don't know about 13 True Ways because okay. I don't have it in front of All me. All right, that's fair. All right. I don't think so. So they get a check in the box for suboptimal characters, but... Yes. All right, they get an X in the other one with no warlocks, or as far as we know. Okay. What's... All right, so other than this ability bonus from race and class, what is one unique thing that you like about the game? Well, funny that you should say that, because one of the things I like is, in fact, the one unique thing... Um, concept. Now, are you? I know you. You asked that tongue in cheek, but do you really know or not know what a, the one unique thing is? I don't. No, I absolutely don't. No, that's why. No, so I was asking the wrong question then, because what is? I was asking like, what is one unique thing about the game? Whereas there's actually a mechanic called one unique thing. Okay. So when you create your character along with the DM input, you come up with uh, like a statement that separates your character from every other character in the game. And um, it's it's what's one unique thing about your character. Uh, it's kind of like a story hook back background, but it, it has the ability, which is why the DM has to sign off on it, to change the world. Um, okay. If you, I know some of the examples. Uh, trying to pull them up. There's an example that's like I'm the only halfling paladin in the Dragon Empire. So if the DM signs off on that, 
we are now saying there are no other halflings that have ever been paladins of the Dragon Empire. Why? Like, that's going to require us to talk about that and go, well, why are you the only one? And why are there no others? And so, you know, you could say, like, if I'm the only elf alive, which I doubt a DM would sign off on that, but let's just say they did. We are now saying there are no other elves in this world. All the elves are gone. Why? What happened to them? Where'd they go? So your one unique thing can be pretty simple. It can be like, I'm an elf with human ears. All right, that's weird. That's interesting. Doesn't really affect the world a whole okay. lot, at least not on the surface. Um, but if you're like, I'm the only left-handed wizard, or I think I remember there's one like, all wizards lie. So you're saying that every wizard is a liar and like compulsed to lie. You're creating the world at the same time. You're, you're making these choices that are going to affect everything. And I love that. Uh, these are some of the third one. Excuse me. These are some of the one unique things in the book as examples. Um, I am a deathless pirate whose soul is trapped in a gem controlled by the blue dragon. I hear pain as music. I cut off my own arm to show how tough I am. Uh, I am a dwarf who was covered in scales from the egg of a dragon. I'm a former cultist. Uh, I'm the reincarnation of an ancient icon, but I don't know which one yet. So those are just some of the examples in the book, and I think there's a few more spread throughout, and I know there's online materials, I think I think like 13thage.org, um, I'll see if I can dig that out, put it in the show notes, where other people have given examples of every, other games that they have been in. And I, I love the aspect that we are saying there's something unique about my character. It's the sort of thing like when you read a fantasy novel or watch a movie, generally there's something about the protagonist that does make them special, that does make them unique. And yes, you have the chance that you're going to cross into snowflake territory, but everybody gets one and everyone has the chance to, you know, with the DM's input to make it as interesting or as benign or banal as they want. Um, so if someone maybe doesn't feel comfortable with like an earth shattering one unique thing, it could be really simple stuff. They have different color eyes. They, again, they have the el elven ears on a dwarven body. body. They're a hairless dwarf. It's things that maybe not even visible to anybody unless they want to bring them out. Um, you know, they speak an ancient language that no one else does. They can see colors that no one else can. I don't know. I'm just trying to make things up now. Uh, but the idea of character creation where you have a one unique thing that you can say is your character's thing as well as, oh, something just popped up. Oh, we have a, apparently we have a new follower. Hey, welcome. Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, so one unique things, I love them. I love them. They can be in depth. I love that it can be simple, but I also love the fact that with the DMs, can, you know, buy in and, and sign off, you can create things and you can just determine things that will affect the entire campaign, the entire world that you're playing in at character creation. It gives you something like a hook and, and a background. Because again, if you're the only halfling paladin, there's a story there and we can talk about it and probably people and NPCs and places in that story are going to come up in the campaign. So what I was thinking about, um, they've almost mechanized the backstory, uh, which I think is a unique thing. Well, no pun intended, but um, <laughs> because so often, which is it, there's kind of a joke about it that players, some, some players write like crazy long backstories, which I know that, like so often like they get enjoyment on that so that's great but a lot of times it's so hard for a gm to use everything that they wrote down and bring it into the game um efficiently so i like the idea of having this one 
unique thing. Like this can be something that's absolutely crazy and epic, but it's it's your thing. And so how does this work as far as do is there like does the player just get to do it or is there do all the other players have to agree? Is this does the GM have the final say or is this your normal just hey, sitting around the table, um, session zero talk kind of stuff? First of all, session zero, ding, take a drink. So a little bit of both. I, I'm, I'm guessing depending on the group that you're in. For the most part, it's a player and a DM collaboration. The DM should have an idea of what the other characters are doing and probably not bring anything that's game-breaking. One of the elements of the one unique thing is it's not supposed to have any sort of me- mechanical benefit. Okay. So you can't say, I'm the best swordsman in the land, so I get plus two on all my attacks. You can say you're the best swordsman in the land if you want to, but it's not going to affect your mechanics at all. So if the DM signs off and says, okay, you know, you have an ancestral blade that was, the hilt is made from the, uh, a dragon bone from the third age. That's just a thing that happens that you're known for the fact that you have this blade, but there's never any mechanical bonuses. It does have a couple lines in there that says like, you know, if you really want a mechanical bonus from your thir- from your unique thing, the DM has the ability to say yes, but then you should carve off something else that you normally get to try to balance it out so it's not an advantage beyond what all the other characters would have. Uh, but it's mostly just story. It's just narrative. It's just world building and character building stuff that can be as, as important or not as important as you want, depending on what you're wanting to play and what you're wanting to do. Cool. I, I really like that. And I'm thinking I'm going to bring that into some of my other games now that you've mentioned it um yeah and that's the thing you can drop into any game like yeah. you can just you know tell me one thing about your character just, that makes you special yep cool so let's talk about backgrounds now all right so okay. i'm gonna come from it from the D 5e um perspective so in D, we all know that your background is going to give you some proficiency bonuses they're going to give you some gear and they're going to give you some role play traits all right so different things that your character is known for okay 13th age, how is it different? What is a background in 13th age? So this is one of the things that I love the most about 13th age. Okay. I think this, it's super simple. And, it, you know, again, I haven't read every RPG in the world. It's very possible this was inspired by or directly lifted from other games. I don't know. But I think it's brilliant and I love it. So the way it works in 13th age, you get a number of points. And I think the basics of the game is everyone gets eight. Uh, There's an alternate rule where rogues and bards get more and fighters get less. But the base game is everyone gets eight. I think there's some feats and talents you can take to give you more. You can't spend more than five in any one background. So you could have eight backgrounds at one point each, or you could have four backgrounds at two points each, or you have one background at five, and then so on and so forth. And when you do your background, you're just, it's like a statement. It's like, I spent seven years in the Assassin's Guild. Then anytime you're trying to do something, like if the DM says, okay, you need to make a check here. If you as the player can say, well, you know, I spent seven years in the Assassin's Guild. Clearly I would be good at this. Then you get to use those points towards your check. So if you have five points in seven years in the Assassin's Guild, you get five plus five to that particular check. A couple things I really like about that one. I think that's, it's great and it's world building. It's it's background building because now we know that you were in an Assassin's Guild. Now you're not any longer. How do people feel about that? Are there other assassins after you? What kind of assassin, you know, was this? And part of it is on the player to justify. And that's where it gets a little wonky because if you have someone that's just a, like an alpha, they might 
try to steamroll the DM and, you know, I'm a, I, I can do everything. I have the, the background of, you know, of something, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the words right now, but something that's very generic and I can apply to everything. Yep. But the DM can always say, well, that doesn't exactly fit. So you have five points, but you're going to get two points towards this check. So there's a bit of a way for the DM to kind of not let that get out of control. But the thing that I like about it is at any time, the DM can say, okay, so you want you want to say that your assassin's training helps you here. We're going to do a flashback. We're going to do a five-minute scene where you tell me of a specific time as an assassin you did something that makes this make sense. And so you're asking the player to give you a little five-minute background. They, they tell a quick story. They're introducing new places, new people that we can, we can bring into the game later. Uh, and I just love that sort of codified... Let's, talk, let's do a little story time. It's kind of like um, Savage Worlds. They have that process, I can't remember now, where you deal cards when you're at a campfire and you have to tell a story. It's kind of like that, but it's basically when the DM wants it. You can ask for it or not anytime, but I would ask for it a lot. I'm a huge fan of flashbacks. Like whenever yeah, Flashbacks I get, are great. I know. It's so much fun because it allows you to do something that's not in the narrative that you're telling right now so that the player, for the most part, can just tell whatever they're thinking it's a great way to share your background in a more fluid way that kind of is not just them sitting there and just giving you exposition for the next 30 minutes yeah um so background yeah, so Mur- uh mumphrey 999 jumped in it's called interludes is what it's called in savage worlds where savage worlds uses cards a lot so i think the way it works is if you're like in a quote-unquote campfire scene um, one character gets dealt a card and the suit determines if it's a story about love or loss or vengeance. And they just, oh, excuse me, uh, give like a, again, like a five minute background story or something in their, their past. So it's, it's similar to that mechanic. Uh, but in 13th age, it, the DM calls for it whenever they want, whenever someone's trying to say, I grew up in a circus. So of course I know how to do this. Okay. All right. Let's talk about one specific time in a circus where this would have been relevant. So I love that. Are there specific things like D&D? There are specific backgrounds that you must take one of these backgrounds. In 13th Age, are there like a set of like, these are the backgrounds that you must choose or is there a, so there isn't? It's completely open. They give a list of examples like acrobat, sage, you know, page, that kind of thing. But you can be whatever you want as long as, again, as long as the DM buys into it. Uh, there are some suggestions like it should include a, a place um, an organization or an icon, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit. Like I was part of the Assassin's Guild of the Crusader because again, the icons are a big deal in 13th age. We're going to get to that, uh, but it can be whatever you want it to be as long as the DM signs off on it. So grew up in a circus, grew up on the streets, was a wizard's page boy, uh, was an apprentice wizard, you know, I don't know, okay. whatever you want to be Assassin's and, Guild, and, whatever yeah. you want to say your background, you just write down, you sign points to it, and whenever you can justify that background making sense, you get to add those points. Okay, so it, it streamlines it a little bit, but there's still there's still some mechanical crunch to it. I right. like that. That's cool. Yeah, and it can, again, it's it's world building. It's giving the players narrative okay. control because they get to create this Assassin's Guild that you may not have thought of as the DM. But now there is one because it's in their background. Okay. All right. We're going to give it another, we're going to give 13th Age, they get another check in the box. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tom likes the narrative control aspect. Okay. So you told me about what is an escalation die? Because that is escalation. I love escalation. And then I love dice. All right. So the escalation die, again, it's a super simple thing, but I love it. And I think it's great. And it's something I would like to maybe add into other games. 
at its basics, the the combat for 13th Age is somewhat uh, loosey-goosey. So you don't really play with maps and minis. You can if you want to. It's not designed that way. You just you have a couple terms like engaged, close, far, that kind of thing. So the idea is your competent characters, your competent warriors, as you're getting into battle, you're going to figure things out. You're going to use the terrain to your advantage. So rather than having to say, all right, my character is going to flank this ogre with Tom's character, it's just assumed that you're making good choices, that you're using the terrain to your advantage, that you're maneuvering to your advantage. So the first round of combat, the escalation dies at zero. The second round of combat, the escalation die goes to one, and the escalation die is supposed to be a big giant D6, but it can, you know, it can be note cards or just writing stuff on the screen. D12 and we'll divide by two. Exactly. However you want to do it. When the escalation dies at one, every attack that you do is plus one. When it goes to two, every attack you do is plus two, three, plus three, all the way up to plus six. So as the get, as the combat goes on, it's going to get easier for you okay. to hit. So where a lot, a lot of times in D&D, and again, I love D&D, but it's true. A lot of times at the ends of the battle, start to slog a little bit. And that's why I usually say, you got this battle. We're just going to end it here. You're going to take out the ogre next turn. There's no point in having five people roll and everybody getting a four. And it's just being stupid at this point. Um, so the escalation die builds so that it gets easier to hit the further you go. But there are also events that sometimes are triggered based off the escalation, escalation die. Now, generally, monsters don't get it. Dragons are the exception. So as the fight goes on, the dragon also gets tougher. Uh, there's feats that will let you uh, add that as damage as well. So I get a plus four to hit and a plus four to damage. Uh, sometimes, like Barbarian's Rage, at a certain number, they can trigger it for free. So they might want to rage right away, but if they wait till the escalation die gets to a certain number, it doesn't cost them a usage of their rage to do that. Um, so it's a way to kind of speed up the battle in a way so it doesn't slog at the end. But it also adds a ton of strategy elements because at certain numbers, certain things can happen. If the characters don't progress, like if maybe three characters are hurt and they all take a rest and the cleric does a healing spell and like no one attacks, the DM can say, well, the escalation die doesn't go up because you didn't press your advantage. Or you can even lower it and go back down. Okay. Certain creatures have that ability as well. They may be able to make it go up or down because they have certain abilities that key off it at certain numbers. And it can also just be a countdown. There's like when you're designing an encounter and like the ship is sinking, you just say if the escalation die gets to six, the ship is sunk. Everyone can see where it's at. They might have an ability to lower it, which, again, just means that you take a little bit of time. But it's a it's a timer as well if you want it to be. Interesting. I, I, I love that. Yeah, that's – okay, so I'm – all right. It's gonna, they're going to get – 13th Age gets another check, all right, in the box for um, streamlining combat. Not necessarily streamlining it, but making it – to me, this is making it quicker. Well, and probably to some, because I'm, I'm guessing most battles aren't going to get to Escalation 6, so most battles are going to be less than seven rounds. But the thing that I like about it is, and I say this a lot like role plan. I am not a master assassin, but I can play one in the game. And the game allows me to let my character do and know things that I don't know. I don't know the best way to extract poison from a scorpion. Why not? But my, but my character does. <laughs> But when you get into combat, we're asking the players to have the strategy. And some people love that. More power to them. Not my bag. Yeah. But I know that my assassin knows strategy. So, yeah, two rounds in, my assassin's going to know 
the best place to strike the ogre. My assassin's going to know the best place to maneuver. So rather than me having to say, okay, I'm going to maneuver behind it, it's just assumed I'm making good choices and the escalation die makes it easier because I know what I'm doing as a master assassin. Okay. So if you like those sorts of things, then yeah, absolutely, more power to you. But I don't think you should penalize someone who wants to play the really charismatic bard if they're not actually charismatic. It's the same concept moved into combat. I don't actually need you to be a, a historian that has studied, you know, Napoleon battle tactics to run a combat like someone who knows that would. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. We'll, we're going to talk about damage and um, all, all that kind of stuff as well. But I also think that this is going to be to for it really, really um, early levels in D and D they have the problem within combat of, um, not being too easy, but being too repetitive because you don't necessarily have a whole lot of things you can do as those tier one characters, levels one through three or four, whatever it is. So you just wind up fighting. You, you hit it with a long sword. Yeah. Your turn is up. So, and then it can it, it can definitely feel like a slog. So I like the idea of, especially at these the lower levels, like as the combat goes on, it's changing slightly, even at these lower levels. Cool. All cool. Right. All right, I'll give they like they, they get another check. All right, check mark. So, um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some more combat stuff later on, but let's just let's get into it. What are icons? Because you've already okay. you, you keep talking about them. They're like you're like all right, so they're, they're a big thing. And then before we started, you're like all right, Tom, I, I want to talk about icons, and I people talk about icons a lot in Thirteenth Age, but right. I have no okay. idea what you're talking about. So. So we're going to talk about icons, but I, I legitimately want to deflect and move it to the very end because I'm oh. afraid if, if I'm going to lose anybody okay. in this conversation, it's going to be when we get to icons because I'm not sure how to describe it succinctly. Okay. So we're going to let that be the very last thing we talk okay. about. Super important. I love them, but it's, that's, it, there's a lot of meat and I'm afraid we'll lose people. All right. That's fine. We'll save the main course. We're still, we're still, we're still getting, we're still getting yep. there. So let's talk about damage by level because, uh, this is this is interesting because so from what I'm hearing is that the damage is gonna go up every yes. time you go up in level. Correct. How's this work? So just as it sounds, if if my character rolls a D12 for damage at level one, I roll four D12 at level four, and I roll eight D12 at level eight. Whatever damage I do is that times my level. So so it goes up. You're telling me that I can ro- I can roll eight or nine d12s. Yes. How does that work? How's, how, who has nine d12s? I do because d12s are the best die. I have a ton of them, but um, it does give some you know um, options in the book. You can just take the average. So if you're rolling eights, your average is four and a half times ten. So you would just say I do forty five points of damage, or you can average half of them and roll half if you just want to roll dice, or you can just roll all of them. Whatever whatever you want to do. But as you go up in level, every level you get another die of that damage type. And one of the things that does is it allows, basically everyone is progressing. And I think 5th edition has done a lot better of this. But in earlier editions of D&D specifically, you had that thing where the wizard at like 5th level became more powerful than everybody. And they didn't really need anybody anymore because they could cast fireball and take out a whole room full of enemies. And a fighter could still just hit one person. So the fighter is now going to be doing a stink ton of damage. And they have feats and abilities that are going to let them maybe hit more than one foe or target one. And if they go down, cleave into the other. So it kind of keeps everybody on the same footing. 
it's also just a visceral response. I mean, like your first thought is I get to roll 8d12. It's fun to roll a handful of dice and go, I do 72 points of damage. Yes. This is, I'm just thinking about all the people now with like a metal dice, just like absolutely <laughs> destroying their tables. But okay. The, like the, these? Yeah. Uh, so the the math person to me is like, this seems, this is obviously, this is a linear progression. All right. So as your character goes up, you're just basically going up one step each yep. time. And it does the same thing for skills too. Like, uh, you know, if you're, Nine count backgrounds, but like if you're making a dex check at level five, it's dex check plus five. At level 10, it's dex check plus 10. So every time you go up a level, pretty much all your math goes up by one. Okay, so here's the thing. Is this broken? All right, in the sense that <laughs> our comp is how balanced is combat supposed to be in 13th age? Or when you get to those high levels, is it just supposed to be combat doesn't even matter anymore because I'm rolling nine D12s? Yeah, no, so... Um, the assumption in the book is that you're going to win most battles. Like that's, again, it's a fantasy story. Most fantasy stories, the, the heroes don't get slaughtered by a random orc patrol at level four. But the, the game does have, like dragons are like the exception to that. Like dragons will F you up. The game only goes to level 10. So like you only have 10 levels for your characters. But dragons go to like higher than 10. Like they actually, their levels higher than that. Okay. Um, so let me try, I'm trying to find a, so like there's a, I found a Manticore. A Manticore has 182 hit points. It's a level six beast. Okay. So 182, that's, uh, oh crap, 500. The Medusa Noble has 500 hit points. So, so you're fighting things that have tons of hit points as well. Okay. Um, I'm not going to get too much into the encounter design because that's yeah. not something I'm great at, but all the characters have types. Um, so you have mooks, which are like your minions, and then you have like um, blockers, you have people who are range, you have like the tanks. So when you build encounters, you kind of want to design them where you have a combination. So you have like um, like the, the range, and then you have the blocker to keep them safe, and then you have like the solo in the middle. Uh, so building encounters, they've got a chart, and you, know, you buy out certain levels. Uh, but yeah, you're fighting things that have a crap ton of hit points. Okay. But you're also dealing out a ton of hit points. Yes. And you know what? I'm just going to, so this is just me. I, I ask that question as when I'm playing role-playing games, I really do. I could care less about combat. And this is just me. As far as my encounter designs, they are the absolute worst. Like I realized that halfway through, I'm like, oh my gosh, my players are never going to beat this. All right. So yeah, you guys just win. Hey. So, <laughs> but so, so um, I, I actually do like the idea of just players just dealing like tons and tons of damage because it, it feels cool. Like, it does. It's cool. It's very cool. All right. So one more thing about damage, because to me, the way we we're talking about this is that your damage is based on your class. All right. But then you, because you were saying like certain classes were doing D6, D12, whatever. But then what does this mean also damage by weapon type? Do weapons even matter? Sort of. This is another thing that is truly one of my favorite things about the system because it just fits into my sensibility. You don't pick a weapon specifically like a longsword. You choose like a heavy bladed weapon. And that heavy bladed weapon can be whatever you want it to be. A scythe. I want to... It could be a scythe. It could be a, a, a sword made out of obsidian. It could be a sword made out of crystal. It could be a sword made out of the bone of a dragon. It doesn't matter what it's made out of. It does damage based on the fact that it's a heavy bladed weapon. So you have the, the creative freedom 
to make it whatever you want it to be. It can be as interesting as you want. And you don't have to have to worry about rules of, well, it's an obsidian dagger, so I guess it breaks every time you use it. No, it doesn't because okay. it's a fantasy game. So you can you can be the ogre that just swings, or a half-orc that just swings a tree trunk. It doesn't matter if it's a tree trunk. It does damage as a heavy, you know, bludgeoning weapon. You could have the archer who shoots, like, energy arrows doesn't matter they still do damage as if they were arrows so you can create the look and feel of your character same thing with armor it can look like whatever you want it to but it's going to be called like light heavy or medium armor but it could be like the you know the little circlet with a little star in the middle that's your armor you're naked otherwise but you still your armor class is based on the fact that you're wearing medium armor and i love that because that's one of the things i always hated about other games where i wanted my character to have like this cool sword but you know, it doesn't how how do you come up with the rules for it? Like yes. I want a katana versus again a bone sword. Doesn't matter. Whatever you want it to be, but just does damage based on what it's called, and then it goes up in level. So if you're a heavy and I don't have the numbers in front of me, it's like a okay. two headed, two heavy handed heavy weapon does D twelve. At level four you do forty twelve. It doesn't matter what it's made out of. Okay, so two things about this. First thing is then does this mean that certain only certain classes can use certain types of weapons? Y- yeah. Okay, so this is where the class weapons like certain classes are going to be dealing more damage because they can use different types of weapons that other classes don't have access to correct okay so then my next question all right so this is the pitfall here that i'm saying players love and honestly as a dm i love just giving my players cool stuff all right that does different things there's something unique and game-changing about getting a magic item that does something different than your regular sword this sword shoots poison i don't know shoots lightning it's all sorts of different things so how does 13th age deal with magic items then so they're included you you have access to them they still do their thing but it's based off of if it's a two-handed bladed weapon it does damage based on that but it can still be a plus two version of that okay Uh, and again this wasn't something i was going to dig into but all magic items have quirks and when you get one you start to absorb those quirks so every item you have is like a role play aid as well. So it might say that you have to gamble more. You're going to be more adventurous. You like to drink now. You can't drink at all. Um, just little, little kind of silly things, but interesting little role playing things. So you can have magic items that kind of conflict with each other. So they all kind of have like, a, they're not sentient, but they all have like a little bit of personality that you get to play with when you pick them up and use them. All right, that sounds cool to me. Let's give them another check in the box. All right, check that box. Yes. So then, all right, let's do it. We've talked about we've talked about backgrounds. We've talked about unique things. We've talked about the escalation die and all the damage stuff. Icons. We're here. This is it. Right. This what is are it. they? This, this is the big thing, and I'm going to try to okay. explain this succinctly. Anyone who's listened by now knows that's not my forte. This is going to be convoluted. You guys, if you guys watching the stream right now, if my eyes start to glaze over, you know why. Okay, right. let's go, so Michael. There, so there's two elements. There's the icons, and then there's the icon relationships, and they are inter- integral to each other. The icons are just the movers and shakers of the world. Like it, pretty much, if you've ever ran a campaign, you probably have thought, "Who's the leader of the city? Who's the leader of the empire? Who's the leader of the thieves guild?" In this game, those would be icons. Now, the book comes with 13, because there's a lot of 13 throughout the, the book. And these are like the Archmage, the Diabolus, the Hydra, the Elf Queen, the Archmage, the Orc Lord, the Lich King, Dwarven King. 
And these are basically the most powerful NPCs in the world. They're the, they're the Elminsters of this world. And all the campaign, whatever you do, is probably going to be related to them in some way because they're the ones that are plotting. If there's about to be a war, one of the icons is fighting with one of the others. And there might be a third icon that's trying to stop it from happening and they're trying to intervene. And maybe two other icons that are trying to egg it on because they want them to fight each other so that, that their goals are progressed. So it's just defining who these powerful people are. If you wanted to create your own, you absolutely can. If you wanted to play like a city campaign, you could have the Thieves Guild as an icon, maybe the government as an icon, uh, the Merchant Guild as an icon, maybe one particular cop or assassin. It's, it's basically just defining these are the most important people in the setting we're playing with. But what I love about it is the relationship and how the relationships feed to the characters. So these aren't just, because the way you're... At first glance, to me, these are just NPCs. Yeah, they are just high-level NPCs. Okay. But there's more to there's, it. There's more to it. All right. I'm... So when you create your character, you're given three background or three icon points. And you spend those points to create relationships to these organizations or to these icons. You can spend up to three on one, or you could have like one, one, and one, or you can have one and two. The number of points doesn't necessarily mean it's a stronger connection, but it's more utilitarian. Because what happens is at the beginning of each game, I do it at the end of each game, but the, the book says at the beginning of each game, you roll a d6 for each point you have for each icon. And if you get a six, then something very positive is going to come out in this session based on that relationship. So if you have a relationship with the Archmage and you roll a six, maybe in that, in that session someone from the Archmage's organization comes and says, hey, we've been keeping up with you. You're doing good work. Here's a letter that will get you in to see this Baron who you haven't been able to get to, or this is a teleportation spell that will get you to the place you've been trying to get to, or here's a plus two sword because we, you're going to go kill somebody. So you're going to get some tangible benefit from that relation. And it doesn't mean the Archmage himself is going to show up, probably not, but it'll be someone in that organization which could easily become a recurring NPC Maybe even someone we pull from the background that you created when you said you had a relationship with the icon. Okay, so real quick, you so we have these icon die. And I want to go back to you said that you rolled them at the beginning of the session or the end of the session. Because then you said that when you roll them, that affects the game. Yep, so the, the way the book is written, you roll them at the beginning of the session. Okay, which makes I sense. I always did it at the end of the session because I would use that to plan for the next session. So in my, in my mind, I wouldn't always use it strictly tangibly as much as, oh, well, definitely the Lich King is going to be part of the next session. Whatever they get involved in, the Lich King is going to be behind it because someone rolled a six or a five. Because I think if you roll a five, it's like a, it's like a complication. You get something, but there's baggage with it. It could be like, hey, here's a plus two sword. Go kill this thing. Forgot to mention, I just stole that from a demon. So now the demon's also after you. So you get something, but there's a complication. And that makes sense. All you're doing is it doesn't it doesn't really matter. You're just adding a week into your or a week or two into your get more prep time and just at the beginning of the next session, just remind everybody what they rolled. And, and um, like they they have examples about where players can actually cash them in, which I never really did that. But like if I have a six with the archmage, and we're trying to figure out a puzzle, and nobody's everybody's stuck, the player has the option to say, "Can I just turn the six in for a, a hint?" and you know, like, yeah, you spend time with the Archmage, blah, blah, blah. I didn't like to do it that way. I like it to be more of a narrative building, but those 
excuse me, those are options. Okay. But when you build your relationships, you can have a positive relationship, a conflicted relationship, or a negative relationship. Now, it makes sense to have a negative relationship with like the evil icons, but you could have a good relationship with the evil icons. That's interesting. You know, you may not like the Lich King, but the Lich King likes you. How is that going to come out in the game? How is that going to come out in the story? Uh, in the 13th Age game we ran, The Secrets, Lies, and the Undead, Caleb's character had a conflicted relationship with the Prince of Shadows, which is like the, you know, the dark thief-like person behind the scenes, always manipulating everybody. And what I love doing with that is that the, the Prince of Shadows was constantly helping Caleb's character, but Caleb didn't want his help. Nice. Because if you're constantly getting help from like a bad guy, people are going to start thinking you're a bad guy. So that was where the conflicted came from. Is like that Prince was always nice to him, but Caleb didn't want him to be nice to him. And I thought that was a great way to use that conflicted. That's hilarious. Um, I would I would love <laughs> to do that to my player. To say just. My... But you can have things like you could have a positive or a negative relationship with like the Archmage. I keep going back to that one for some reason. Um, so maybe you were part of the college and you got kicked out for cheating. Maybe you didn't actually cheat. So you don't like hate the guy's guts, but you have a negative relationship with that organization they're part of. So everybody has up to three of these or three points. And when you're starting the campaign, you've got your one unique things. Everybody builds their backgrounds. And then you create these icon relationships. That is so much information for a DM to be able to use for building sessions, encounters, adventures, and campaigns. Yeah. And it's just a way to flavor things. Like, say, I know they're going to fight a cave full of goblins, because I need them to fight a cave full of goblins, but one of the characters has a negative relationship with the Lich King. Maybe these are like death-worshipping goblins, and they have all this symbology of death and skulls. Or maybe they follow the Diabolist, and all of their iconography is along the lines with her, or the Elf Queen. Like you can flavor encounters just a little bit, but it makes it feel like it's tied in more when it's just set dressing. So it's easy to make it feel like the world is more interactive than it really is. So it's like a, it's like a way to not cheat, but it's a simple way to make the campaign seem more than maybe it is. Yeah, it's and just really like it's that. just another way that it feels like they're mechanizing your backgrounds in interesting ways. So. Yeah. The, one of the things I was thinking about as you're talking is can you, because things change during the course of a campaign, are these all chosen at the beginning of the campaign or can you shift these around and change these icon dies as you play and your character's motivations change and their goals and you meet new people? Can they yes. change? Uh, there, there are mechanical, like I think at certain levels, you get additional points that you can allocate and I believe there's also certain points where you can change them but the DM always has the option if something happens so let's say your character has a connection to the elf queen and my character doesn't but as part of the adventure the whole party does something that the elf queen needs done then maybe I develop a plus one positive relationship with the elf queen because of the adventure so the DM always has the ability to change things if the players are wanting to based on the story then the narrative is the most important thing okay I, I sounds sounds cool to me so there's there's other things but those are the big ones okay and again support i love DD. still probably my favorite game i think fifth edition is the best version of the DD i've ever played i love it but 13th age does a lot of things i really like things that i do in my DD games 
and how I allowed narrative control. We built backgrounds, we built stories together so that I have all this material. 13th Age codifies it so that you, it's, it's built in. It's not just something I'm layering on top. Um, and it's just a lot of fun. Okay. So, all right. Are you ready for, we'll talk about them more, do however much you want, but are you ready for my 13th Age report card? Yes. Okay. Right on me. All right. So let's let's look at some, let's look at the checks. All right. So all right. Obviously, I like the idea of making sub-optimized classes. Let's give the check. All right. Mechanized backgrounds. Check. All right. Escalation die making combat more interesting. Give it. It gets a check in the box. All right. Uh, damage by level and rolling heaps and heaps of dice. Check. Absolutely icons making npcs actually matter give it a check okay not having a warlock big old x <laughs> fail all right uh, <laughs> that one's that's a curve oh, that's a, weighted the most it's, right? it's weighted the most no warlocks no it's i mean i joke about it but it, this sounds i mean it really does sound pretty cool it really, really is. Um, I know for our next Woodburn games, we're going to be running, you and I are running our multi-dimensional D&D two-table event. Yes. Uh, but I'm thinking about maybe 13th Age for the one after. Uh, do a one-shot there. So I would absolutely be interested in this. Um, I'd be curious to see, because after we've described 13th Age, I, I think that there's... Um, I feel like 13th Age works best as a campaign, because I feel like so many of the rules really build into a campaign. So I'd be curious to see how it feels in a one shot obviously you still have your escalation die you've got your damage by level and stuff so there's going to be because one shots are a little bit different but yeah i'm absolutely down for converting this over to 13th age and giving it a go i I do agree that a one shot which i think a one shot for any system is less than ideal most of the time there's a few systems do it really well uh but even dnd i much prefer a campaign Mm -hmm. but yeah I, i agree because people may choose icons that you just can't really force in or they have like everybody takes like so many they spread out so that like all 13 are represented there's no way you're gonna be able to do that in a one shot all right Uh, phantom tim just jumped in and said that dark packs and ancient secrets is a 13th age source book that has warlocks all right so we can officially say that 13th (laughs) age is the best (laughs) role-playing system you heard it here (laughs) i don't know about that but it is it's really good i've said this before if fifth edition hadn't come out when it did Right as our podcast was starting, and Ian, I love D&D, and it was topical, so we fell right into it. I think 13th Age would be the game that I was that I play. Like, it would be my home game. Um, at least that, I mean, I may have moved on, but I think because 5th Edition kind of took over, I only got to play in it a little bit. But that campaign we ran is a lot of fun. It's, again, it's still one of our best APs. People have said it's their favorite, and I think the 13th Age system heavily influenced that that campaign being so fun so one other thing will wheaton's game titan's grave that's 13th age right no that is fantasy age fantasy age green ronin okay too many ages all right yeah there there are a lot of ages okay no all right so very cool i mean it sounds interesting the way you, you 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 pitched it well michael again i'm a proponent i hope anyone who's listening who maybe hasn't checked it out you know, maybe go buy the books. I don't know. It's up to you. Uh, if you do buy them from Pelgrane Store, because you always get a free PDF, which is awesome. Uh, but definitely go to conventions, go to Woodburn Games or wherever you're at. Try to get into a game. It's it's a ton of fun. And if nothing else, steal some of this for your games, the other games that you play, 
Uh, I just think it helps enrich that backstory, which makes a DM's job so much easier when you have just meaty backgrounds that you can pull on and twist and prod. And, you know, the characters feel if the character chooses to have a relationship with the high druid and you introduce a problem that the high druid has, you're going to have buy-in. If the character doesn't have a relationship to the high druid and you try to say, here's the high druid, they need help. Maybe they buy in, maybe they don't. I, I think having them decide that their character has that relationship at the beginning is going to create instant investment in these NPCs. And that's one of the biggest struggles I have as a DM is how do I make my characters care about these people that have to show up? It's like the revolving door. They walk mm-hmm. into, you know, it's like the A-team or whatever. The, they come into town, there's a problem, they got to help solve it. They may not care about any of these people, but if I can say, you know, this town is being influenced negatively because the Lich King has a citadel nearby, maybe that helps build a connection that uh, a little easier to connect with than me trying to force it on them. Yeah, makes sense to me. All right. So we got a few people that are watching. Thank you for everyone who is. Um, So we'll give a few minutes for questions. So if anybody has any questions, I'm not an expert of the system. Of course. Uh, but if you have any questions, I will try my best to answer them. Or you can ask questions that have nothing to do with 13th Age, just me or Tom or role-playing or conventions or whatever in general. Uh, there's a little bit of a delay. So, so, Tom, while we're waiting for any potential questions, one more time, where can people find you and your stuff on the Internet? You can find me at Bezkar Tom on Twitter, where I post a bunch about role-playing games and comic books and then a bunch of other weird stuff. And then also, you can, which I'm actually getting more involved in, and we'll be posting more on in the future my blog sparkybard.wordpress.com where i post a lot of my homebrew stuff and where i've been doing a lot more layout stuff um because i i do layout and so as i've been i've started to take my my layout work from my job and translate that over to role-playing games so i've been I've been doing some stuff for some people so it's, it's yep. some We're stuff in the future hopefully have templates for us soon so like i think our classic Side by side black is is great, um, but apparently it's not. So Tom is working on um, uh, trying to make us look a little bit better. Uh, so we're working on that. Uh, also, you have a third. You have a not a thirteen age. You have a D and D campaign that you ran. Uh, water, uh, yeah, Water Deep Dragon Heist. We are completed now. You can catch all of those on YouTube. We are prepping for our next one, which is Ghost of Salt Marsh. Talking about campaigns, I want to. There's an interesting question that just showed up in the chat. So, Phantom Tim asks, which of the 5e hardbound adventures do you think would work best if run with 13th Age? So, I'm going to have to take somewhat of a mulligan here because I don't run very many modules. I'm permitted to always homebrew, so I'm not as familiar with the adventures. My um, initial thought would be. And I'm trying to I think it's it's the one with Tiamat in it. I was actually just about to say that one. Yeah. Only because there's the icons, the way they work, there's one of the icons is called the three, and it's three dragons, the the blue, the black, and the red. And they work together as an organization. There is the green one, which is supposedly dead. Um, and then there's also a white one, I don't remember, but it's not said specifically in there, but there's there's hints that it's potential that those five, if they were to ever get together, would combine into a quote-unquote Tiamat-type creature. Um, so I think that could be a really cool 
uh, yeah. aspect, but I don't really know beyond that. So I apologize. I don't have a better answer. So one of the things, so I do play a lot of the hardbound adventures and I would definitely say the Horde of the Dragon Queen, Rise of Tiamat, absolutely perfect because it has this real epic feel to it. It's very linear, but it's, and like I said, it's just epic. So I feel like 13th Age would just lend itself to this. I'll say what it 13th Age would not work for, right? Curse of Strahd. I can see it right now because it's very limited NPCs. It's a very limited scope. Uh, so I think 13th Age, you need a little bit more variety, open world, a lot more NPCs, um, things happening in the world. I will say I was Waterdeep Dragon Eyes would actually work for this as well because it's it's low level, but the idea of you're in Waterdeep. There's this massive city. There's so many movers and shakers. I think this would be a Waterdeep Dragon Eyes would be a perfect hardbound yeah, adventure. You could just reskin some of the NPCs to be the icons in exactly. that version. Oh, absolutely. I think it would work great. Yeah, and then Mumphrey999 asked about um, misses that can deal damage or have special effects. So yeah, so there are certain classes, I think Viters do this, that even when they miss, sometimes they do damage. So you know you don't have a situation where you roll and you roll poorly and it's like, well, I don't do anything. You still get a little bit. And then some of the classes have abilities that trigger based on what was rolled. So like an even number or a, a natural 11 can cause like maybe another character to get a bonus action. Uh, which one of the things it does is it tries to keep everyone involved in the combat at all times. So you're less likely to have someone that rolls their dice and then sort of checks out until it's their turn again. Still can, but they might have a character that says, okay, I need to know whenever anyone rolls an 11. So they're might be paying more attention. Um, and it just adds a little bit of diversity to um, certain like odds and even results. They do kind of different things. I don't know the, enough the specifics to call out any individual ones but they are definitely in there and i think they're a cool addition to again keep combat interesting and keep more people focused on what's happening because they can get triggered on certain things okay cool all right so one last call so we actually have several people just jumped on now at the end sorry um so we're, we're kind of taking questions uh, so one more time while we're waiting for the catch up again my name is michael i'm at, at the rpg academy we've been podcasting for six seven years now pretty new into the twitch youtube thing so we don't have as nearly as much of that up we have tons of audio only podcasts so if you're interested in that go check out our stuff on itunes or pod podcast addict or whatever podcaster you want um, if you're here for 13th age we did a 13th age campaign called secrets lies in the undead which is against a 13 episode uh season one it's really good check it out um and we have our own convention. We're running an online convention next month, Catacomline, free to play, jump in, run some games, play some games. And then our actual IRL convention is in November each year, 8th, 9th, and 10th this year in Dayton, Ohio. So if you're in Dayton, Ohio in November, I'm sorry, but we'll give you something to do while you're there. That's right. <laughs> All right. So one more second for any other questions and we'll sign off. So anything else from you, Tom, before we take off? Uh, no. So things coming up, obviously Waterdeep Dragon Heist is over next, this upcoming Wednesday. Uh, we're going to be doing a recap of our campaign and doing a little review of it. So, yeah. Very cool. And another thing is you're going to be starting a new campaign after that sometime. Ghost of Saltmarsh, which will probably be coming starting around end of August. So, and exciting for me is that we're going to make that an audio podcast as well. We didn't with Waterdeep Heist because you were kind of getting used to the, the YouTube thing and Roll20. And there's a lot of elements that are more visual and they may not translate as well to audio. But we think we have it worked out now where it will be a entertaining audio podcast as well. No, that's the plan.
I guess we will call it there. So thank you to everyone who's watching and listening now or in the future. I really appreciate it. So this has been Michael. And this has been Tom. And we'll do our awkward wave out as I look for the button. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.